Yeah. Hey, everybody. Hey, welcome to the Mockingbird Conference. Um, so my name is my name's Ethan Richardson. Um, I work with Dave and Margaret and CJ and Kendall um, for Mockingbird in Charlottesville. Um, and I just want to say at the outset, as, as everything gets started, um, if there's one thing that you take away from this weekend, like if there's, if there's one thing that's sort of ingrained on your mind and on your heart uh, when you go back to, uh, you know, New Hampshire or New Mexico or Sweden, I know there's some Swedes here, um, we are totally fine with that one thing being that there was this blacklit yo-yo show that we went to. And I actually don't remember anything else that happened at the conference, but this like blacklit yo-yo episode was actually pretty cool. Um, if you tell people that, like that is way cooler than like 99% of any conferences about God and Jesus. Um, so if, if Justin um, set sort of the, um, the like vibrational tenor for, for this weekend, um, I have like the way less cool job of setting up the concepts. Um, the theme this weekend, you know, is beyond deserving, hope in a world of performance. Um, and you can't really talk about hope beyond the world of performance without first talking about performance itself. How there's this massive demand on each of us to perform, to be someone, to play a multitude of roles at every moment of every day. And in order to talk about the pressure of that performance, I want to talk about the people in our lives who put us through it. And I'm not just talking about our families, I'm talking about snobs. Tonight I want to talk about the snobs in our lives. So, um, if this is your first Mockingbird Conference, um, you might be feeling a little bit confused at the scene you just walked into. Um, and yo-yoing aside, I know I certainly felt that way when I came to my first Mockingbird Conference. Um, I had had some exposure to the Mockingbird website. I was familiar with some of the themes, namely, you know, that God's power is in the cross and uh, the grace of Jesus is present for all miserable sinners, um, the lepers, the rule breakers, the harlots. And then when I got here, what I found instead was something akin to like a Goldman Sachs power hour and a Warby Parker ad. You know, everybody looks super, super dapper. Um, and so for a conference that's sort of built on the bedrock of, of human suffering and need, um, there's some really impressive shoe game going on at this conference. Like if you just look down the aisle, there are some people with some amazing shoes. Um, and then the food, the food is so amazing. It's like critically acclaimed good. Um, you probably can't smell it yet, but we have enchiladas, suizas tonight, and Long Island ceviche. So anyways, for this reason, um, I think it's really easy to look around at this ancient, impressive nave and see all of the neighbors around you are equally impressive and feel as though you are surrounded by snobs. 
which at a grace conference can also feel a little bit like the opposite of grace. And I want to say that tonight, um, what you really should know is that you're right. You are totally surrounded on every corner uh, by whitewashed tombs, people who are totally uh, snobby, and that also you are a snob. You are a snob because you are human. And I would also say that you are a snob, whether you like it or not, because you are a scared, lonely, needy person. So, with that said at the outset, um, one of the images that has sort of been seared in my brain over the past year, um, and is sort of the impetus for this talk, is that documentary on Netflix about the fire Festival. Um, on the front end of this festival that was supposed to be such a big deal, you have the promotional material. Um, it was supposed to take place on Pablo Escobar's private island. Uh, there was like the social media blitz, the supermodels that are like swimming with pigs. Um, these, these private water planes, you know, that come down and Ja Rule is a part of it. Um, and so on... On the front end, it is all exclusivity and glamour on this like unreachable, fantastic island. And then on the right-hand side, you have what was actually the reality. FEMA tents, wet mattresses, and massive bankruptcy and fraud. And so I don't think that there is really any better picture of what the internal life of a snob is. Snobs, plain and simple, are judges, and in a world that is diametrically opposed to the idea, yeah, that's Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore. <laughs> in a world that is diametrically opposed to judges, uh, to discrimination, uh, drawing up lines between who's right and who's wrong, and who deserves this, uh, the gold jacket, or who doesn't deserve the gold jacket, snobs are around to show us still how far-reaching and innate that tendency is. So, in a talk about snobbery, um, you've got to talk about this show, and I've spent the last three weeks trying to decide which of my favorite clips from Schitt's Creek I would play. And I landed on this one, but I could have picked like 18 others. Uh, if you're not familiar, Schitt's Creek is about the Rose family. And they're this wealthy Hollywood family. They got big via Rose Video, which was like a movie rental company. Um, and then they lost everything. They had a bad money manager. And the only thing that they were allowed to keep was this backwater town that they bought as a joke 15 years ago. And so they're forced to move back into this town they've never lived in. Um, and they move into a motel. And while they put the pieces together, um, and while they are for the first time in their lives in need of this serious help, their insufferable snobbery still gets in their way. And so in this scene that you're going to see, there's, there's Moira and Johnny. That's the mom and dad. And they've decided they need to develop a social life. Um, even here in Schitt's Creek, you've got to be around other people than just your family. Um, as painful as it is in this terrible place. So they're, they're sitting in this cafe that they go to all the time, and the mayor and his wife walk in. 
know, the more I think about it, the more I wonder whether David's whole sexually adventurous thing was just a phase. It's not a phase. Well, you know, he was very influenced in college, all those haircuts. It's not a phase, John. The kids are right. We've been talking about them far more than I care to tell you. that topic just knocks me out, baby. Hey, how you doing? Jocelyn. Hi. Hi, Moira. Why don't you join us? Moira, what are you doing? Attempting to be social. Support me. Won't you, okay. please? Sure. Hi. Hello. Well. Hello. Hello. Good to see you. Look at us all being together. Uh-huh. <laughs> Jonathan and I were just saying, wouldn't it be fun to have the mayor and his wife over for cocktails and charades? Tonight. Yes, tonight. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, that's not going to work for us. We're having a huge party tonight at our place. A ton of people coming to our house. Oh, yeah. Big. But we're free any other night other than tonight. I'm sorry, what kind of event are you hosting this evening? Event? Well, it's more of a soiree. He's just teasing. It's our annual Hawaiian night. Pineapples, pig on the spit, whole nine yards. Oh, you, you uh, roast pigs? We do. Ooh. We have a big one hanging in the garage. Mm -hmm. Wow, sounds like uh, quite the evening. So whose pig do we have to slaughter to get an invite? Oh, my goodness. Well, um, we just didn't think that you and Johnny would want to come, so. Well, that's a touch presumptuous, Jocelyn. Why would we not want to be involved in a themed party in your yard? Well, I mean, for one thing, you know, the two of you are a little, uh, little what? Hoity-toity. All right, I said it. We didn't think that you'd want to hang out with regular people. What? Oh, regular people. Regular people are how Rose Video became such a... Right, Care careful. Regular people. I mean, they made us who we were. What am I trying to say? We love regular people. We love regular people. Well, by all means, and the two of you are invited. Thank you. Okay, so as much as they need people in their lives, as much as they know that need, as much as um, they are desperate for um, some sort of credit coming somewhere because they've lost everything, these are not the people that they want to be around. And of course, it's not just the Roses demographic uh, who refuse to see themselves as regular people. Um, I really don't need to get a list going of, of the kinds of snobs in our lives because like each of us has like a Rolodex of the various people that we can't really stand to be in a room with. Um, but let's just get the ball rolling. So there's, there's this snob, you know, there's the, there's the nobility snob, the, uh, the Draco Malfoy, um, Malfoy family snob. There's the heritage and the clubs and the schools and, and the old rights. Um, this, is, this is what we think about when we think of snobs. But these kinds of snobs are pretty easily dismissible if, I don't know, you grew up in the Midwest 
or you're a muggle. You have no idea who the Malfoys are. But then there's the counter snob. There's, there's the righteous snob who one-ups the nobility snob by sort of dethroning them, uh, by saying what they care about doesn't matter. And so we just posted this on the site not too long ago, but um, apparently, you know, Patagucci, Patagonia, um, they've decided that no longer are they going to supply these like corporate discounts um, so that people can buy their power vests, you know, um, if you're a hedge fund or you're an oil company. And so the reason is, you know, they said they want to focus on, on making great gear that sort of fits with their mission, you know, the, the kind of stuff they want to do. But I thought this was so noble of them, you know, because they still do sell these, like, $300, like, baby bubbles, you know. And so, you know, it's, it's part of the mission. But And then we have um, sort of sort of the cultural literati, you know, <laughs> the ones who sort of pride themselves on reading the Reddit threads for obscure Portuguese television, or they know all the important opinions on the new music scene before even Pitchfork does. Um, and then this is also the parent that sort of dresses their children in onesies that like rep obscure literary magazines, you know. And then there's the church snob, you know, the, the seminarian who, like when you say full-heartedly, Happy Easter, they say, well, Easter was six hours ago. You should have been at the vigil. <laughs> and then there's the social justice snob who, you know, interrupts a conversation to ask you what your preferred pronoun usage is um, or accessorizes their infant uh, with intersectional kind of one-liners. And then there's the minimalist, the slow foodist, the philanthropist, the priest, <laughs> the optimist, and the existentialist. And you know that the list could just go on and on and on. Um, the snob just has this endless array of species and subspecies. But once you get down to it, they're really all just composed of the same stuff. Um, no matter where they buy their groceries or go on vacation or get their news, uh, the atomic element of any snob is just this insider knowledge. The codes and the handshakes and the cultural trivia uh, that draw the line between those who belong and those who don't. You know, the top brass from the nickel. And this is everywhere. Uh, in our culture, it's in our work lives, it's in our personal lives, even amongst close friends. Um, there are, there's an infinite number of courtrooms of acceptable conduct. And these courtrooms are where we spend most of our waking hours, defending our cases, pronouncing our verdicts, even when we're by ourselves. So... I'm not saying that we are just snobs, we are also snobbed against, and we find ourselves both like the generators and the recipients of these like very hollow, very narrow judgments. Which is why it is so difficult uh, to go to a cocktail party you don't wanna go to and to be around judgy people. Um, 
This is from Elaine de Botton, which I never know how to say his name, so I'll say Alan Buttons. Um, <laughs> he says, the company of the snobbish has the power to enrage and unnerve because we sense how little of who we are deep down, that is, how little of who we are outside our status, will be able to govern their behavior towards us. We may be endowed with the wisdom of Solomon and have the resourcefulness and intelligence of Odysseus, but if we are unable to wield these socially recognized badges of our qualities, our existence will remain a matter of raw indifference to them. So when the world's full of courtrooms and every new stranger is a potential judge, it doesn't take long to see how these pursuits aren't just like cute examples of how sometimes we're judgy and small-minded. Snobbery is so often synonymous with that, with, with being trivial, um, focusing on how things appear to the outside world. And while that's definitely true, it also misses the point that we are often co-opting these small differences in purity or in, in quality to say something moral or even religious about ourselves. Um, so, for example, uh, there was this article uh, in Vox uh, this past year from this millennial Brooklynite uh, named Rebecca Jennings. Uh, and the premise of the article was this. In the wake of all these like direct-to-consumer products that have been released, you know, like the Casper mattress and Allbird shoes, Brooklinen sheets, uh, ritual vitamins, you know, like these fancy vitamins you can order. Um, she would, she was, she was going to quote, surround myself with the products whose entire raison d'etre was being the best. The stuff that claimed it was the only one you'll ever need or the last one you'll ever have to buy. And she says, I'd try them all for a week in the service of a single question. Would they actually improve my life? And so you're at a Mockingbird conference. Um, after a week, she uses nothing but the best, and it's pretty much how you'd expect. I mean, the products are phenomenal. Um, she really likes the vitamins, but she is still, on the whole, Rebecca Jennings. Here's what she says. Oh, I forgot to show you the picture of all the pretty stuff. It all looks the same. Um, is this the part of the essay where I'm supposed to say, it doesn't matter how cute your leggings are or how many questions you answered to create your perfectly customized vitamin medley? Is this supposed to be uplifting in a be happy with what you have sort of way? I have been pretending for the past seven days but the reality is that I am very, very far from this lifestyle. In fact, the older I am, the less sure I feel that I'll ever get it, any of it. Not the privilege to buy the best couch and the toothbrush that comes with a subscription. None of us deserves that much, but we are supposed to want it. I want it, and having a facsimile of it this week has made me sadder that I don't. So this, in the end, um, is what seculosity is about, what, what Dave's new book is about. Um, he's talking about sort of how the quote-unquote small things in life have actually become the big things. Um, how we have, because we are humans, employed the small things 
uh, to help us feel pure, to help us be pure. And while we have left behind all the semantics of religion, uh, we don't talk about justification or righteousness. Weirdly enough, you know, the chicken we eat or the strollers that we buy or the mattresses that we sleep on suddenly become a way to deserve this righteousness that we say we don't believe in anymore. And so our snobbery actually reflects this deep hunger for and declaration of our righteousness. And the specific things that you are snobby about reflects the very personalized and very fragile way that you plan on going about deserving it. So what this entails um, eventually is that we become exceedingly deceptive to the world around us and to ourselves. Um, You isolate yourself in the delusion of righteousness um, or just to put away the judges. You put off the truth about yourself. And so then what you're left with is this immense gap between the self that you're showing to the world and the real self that's waiting to be unveiled. You stay on your island and you just keep up the mirage, which is, I mean, totally what Jesus was talking about um, when he had so much to say to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were were totally the snobs of yore. Um, Jesus says they're whitewashed tombs. They, They look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of bones. They are blind guides. They strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Jesus sees that the Pharisees, just like any self-righteous snob, must do two things at once. He must continue drawing lines in the sand, separating the righteous from the unrighteous. And second, he must build a wall so that he can hide his lies from the world and from himself. He will become deceptive even to the point of self-destruction. And it's no different today. In order to sort of belong in whatever small concentric circles you want to belong to, um, the convincing and the performing game never ends, uh, which also means that the deceit never ends, even in the times and the places, like especially in the times and places when you need help the most. Which is why if we're ever going to find hope outside of this, life or God must tear down our walls. Which brings me back to Schitt's Creek. So as the, um, there's another pretty uh, fire festival uh, brochure. Um, So as the Rose family. Mom, can you come here please? as the Rose family, they're, so they're attempting to adjust to this life where they have no money, no friends, and zero cultural cachet in this podunk town. Um, and so that leaves them with a choice. They can either lay stranded in the wasteland of regular people, or they can ingratiate themselves. They can condescend um, to the people around them and try to find in some way new social ties. And they almost always opt for uh, the former, not the latter. So in this episode, uh, Moira um, and her son David, who's who's actually the creator of the show, 
they've just received a package in, uh, that was sent to their motel. And it could be the first correspondence from anyone from their previous life, from their, their life of status. And this is what happens. Mom, can you come here, please? What? I said come here, please. You come here. We got a big box sent to us. We did? It's a package. Who's it from? I don't know. Oh, it's for me. Thinking of you. Dear M, hope this helps. I only wish I could do more. XOXO JSP. Justine St. Pierre. David, one of my dear friends is finally reaching out. And you know what? I knew it would be Justine. She could be an angry drunk, but we were always close. Congratulations on your Allez-vous starter kit. That frigid whore. What's Allez-vous? It's a scam. It's her stupid cosmetics company. Oh. It's a pyramid scheme for desperate housewives and struggling actors. Well, how much can we make from this? David, it's an insult. We're sending it back. Well, apparently you can win an Audi. What color? A champagne Audi. Look at that. As if you could ever sell enough of this crap to get a car. Well, Christy Stubbs and her team out of Montreal have sold enough to get the car, so... Don't believe everything you read, dear, please. <gasps> Burn it. Except this mascara. Okay, so, so now they're in this sort of no-man's land um, because they've been totally insulted by the elite uh, uh, from which they come. Uh, but they're also, they're also not trashy pyramid scheme people. So what they eventually decide to do, because, yes, they need the money, and because the people in town would, like, definitely be stupid enough to want this crap, they're going to host a luncheon in their motel to share the good news about allez-vous. And, um, you know, to them, I, you're thinking it, it must be this kind of admission of failure because, yeah... They still are trying to sell these products, but at the same time, desperate times call for desperate measures. Here's what, what happens. Well, good afternoon. Everyone have a full glass, I hope. We've wanted to have you all here for ages. You've all so graciously welcomed us into your heavenly hamlet. Now, if you'll be so good as to follow me, David is setting out some hors d'oeuvres in our adjoining suite. David, we have guests. You were supposed to have cleaned up all these quality products. I must have lost track of time. Now the seating areas are covered in Allez-vous cosmetics. I know. I just didn't want to put such high-quality paraben and pava-free product on the floor. Come on in. <laughs> okay, well, everything's going super well, I can well, see. So. That's the sister. Well, no, come on. We've got for a bit. No, we've made our appearance, and now we can go. Your mom asked me to come. Well, she asked everybody to come. Can you not just say no for one time, Ted? Jocelyn, you can hold this lip plumper. Ronnie, this is a mineral moisturizer. You could keep it on your lap or sample it. David, now is not the time to discuss Allez-vous preferred customer discounts. Actually, I think I'm going to be getting lunch elsewhere. Can I come with you? I don't, I don't think so. Now you get all decisive-y? I was just so excited about Allez-vous exclusive anti-aging formula and rejuvenation serums. Alexis, you'd like this product. It's all about aging and dry skin. Oh my god, ew, David! David, I know you're excited to be part of the fastest-growing multi-level marketing community on the continent, but honestly... There's something wrong with your face. 
My face. <laughs> well, if any of you do happen to have questions about the products or how to make up to $600,000 a year, I suppose I'd be willing to share with you what I know. In the meantime, please eat, drink, to your possible beauty. Who's, Who's interested? interested? Oh, it doesn't look like anybody is really interested. I know someone here wants in on this exclusive opportunity. Moira, honey, that champagne Audi is really hard to get. Excuse me? Take it from me, Roland and I have been allez-vous reps for two years and we're still driving that old truck. Sorry, you're... you're an allez-vous consultant? I'm actually an executive area manager. I'm a district manager. I'm an executive district manager. I gave up. What? <gasps> the allez-vous craze hit the town a couple years ago and you should have seen us. In two weeks, we had sold everything to the other half of town and vice versa. That's... That's funny. It became a bit incestuous. Yeah, very small sales pool. Came literally impossible to climb the ladder. Anywho, good luck. <laughs> okay, um, I don't know if you noticed, right at the beginning of the clip, Moira's got a wall that's just like, uh, she, she hangs all of her wigs. Like, she wears like a different wig in every episode. Um, but. These moments in, in the show are few and far between where the veil falls between um, their sort of like their presumption of who they are and their, their likeness to the, to the rest of the town. Um, and even when it does come, it's, it's really quickly put away because that, that tension is the whole show. Um, but the roses are in fact, and this is the revelation, just regular people. Um, they are small-minded people. They are terrible people but they are also regular people. They too fell hook, line, and sinker for a chance at the Champagne Audi. And the only hope for snobs like the Roses is that the facade would crumble, you know, that somehow uh, the truth would find its way through Moira's wigs and David's leather shirts and face cream. And if it were to happen, they might find that, you know, appallingly at first, but then maybe comfortingly, they're not so different from their neighbors. And surprisingly, here they might actually find the bridge from the Isle of Snobs to the land of the living. But until then, how could they? And how could we? You know, we've after a life's training in calculating who's in and who's out, uh, what to do, what not to do, who to be seen with, who not to be seen with, how could you fall over to the wrong side of the line and see those other people as kindred rather than just the pitiful ones that you always saw that way? Uh, we're no different. And so the, we're also no different in the fact that when the world around us is burning, uh, the first thing we do is we try to save our wigs. You know, we try to save the things that, that keep the image up. So no matter what it is for you uh, that you from time to time get snobby about, whether it's money or uh, influence, your reputation, 
the lives of your children, being informed, being witty, uh, being different even. No matter what it is that props you up against the world of ordinary people, whatever it is, you may even know theoretically that there's not enough of it in the world to actually give you the sort of longing that, that, you, uh, that you have, still it would take a reckoning to be willing to accept something new and to enter into um, a new equation, you know, an economy that's beyond deserving. And thankfully, you know, because life is hard and because God is in control, uh, there are plenty of opportunities for such reckonings. So besides the Pharisees, I mean, the Bible is littered with snobs, um, but besides the Pharisees, there's one other snob that trumps all snobs in the New Testament. And it's funny because he's actually a Pharisee too, uh, but he comes out pretty well in the end. But like the Pharisees, he comes from top brass. He knows right from wrong, who's in, who's out. Uh, Like the roses, he probably knew that you just don't drop raisins into champagne to get the bubbles going. Like that's not a classy thing to do. His social standing, uh, I can imagine, would make him just a totally insufferable person to be around. And he was avid about the law. And according to the law, he said he was himself blameless. He was an island. As for righteousness, he said, faultless. But he was wrong. And as he was thrown from his horse and he lost his vision, he lost with it his righteousness storyline. It was the best thing that happened to him, he said. He was given a new storyline, one that didn't involve continual measuring and proving and deserving. And as he put it, whatever had been an advantage before, it became a loss to him. For Jesus, I've lost all of it, but it doesn't matter. All of that is garbage to me now, now that I have him. Saul's life, which had been propped up by a righteousness of performing and deserving, was dead. And someone new was alive now, and his name was Paul. And so I I wonder sometimes what what Paul thought of the prodigal son story and what he was thinking about when he first heard it, because um, my guess is that he totally related more to the snob, the elder brother, the brother who, you know, sort of has his arms crossed and, you know, disapproval of, of any party that would be thrown for a loser. Paul, I would bet, might even say that that poor snob was him, you know, that Jesus was telling a story about him, uh, a boy who's hamstrung by his own accomplishments, uh, hamstrung by his own good stock, and that while the party continued and the father beckoned him in and continued to beckon him in, it wasn't until he fell that he was able to enjoy simply being a child. So um, it seems that God has two things to say to us snobs. The first is that your merits are always a greater stumbling block 
than your demerits. The elder brother, like you and me, stands outside in resolute fear that he must keep strong. And that the only reason the people in there are partying is because they've given up on being as strong as I need to be. The elder brother is totally smug, but he's only smug because he's afraid. And he's always invited to the Supper of the Lamb. He will not join that Supper of the Lamb, though, until he sees that he, too, was lost and now is found. And the second thing that God says to snobs like you and like me is that while you are striving for what's best, God is going to use what is rejected to be his cornerstone. We live in a world that is obsessed with lives that are built on the right choices and the right ideas. Jesus Christ is the counterpoint. As he stood in the temple, you know, um, during Holy Week, as he stood in the temple, you know, this fortified island of God's righteousness, he told his people that Easter was coming and that the rejected stone would be the saving one that the righteousness that you seek and are, are spending so much time trying to deserve can't be deserved. It's been given. And so now, what we have this weekend is a chance to remember that. So we'll go downstairs and, and we'll eat our fancy nosh and we'll talk about sort of the clubs we're in and the kinds of churches we go to and the TV that we're watching. But remember this, that Jesus came for the lost, not for the found, and that's good news. And don't ever sell your property on Schitt's Creek, because if our Savior is right, it is from Schitt's Creek that flows the wellspring of eternal life. <laughs> Amen.